You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 8. So that's 1 Kings chapter 8, and we'll do our study in that chapter today as we continue in our study going through the books of First and Second Kings called Desiring the Kingdom here today in chapter 8. You know, as we're looking at these books that cover 400 years of the history of the nation of Israel, it's really important to remember that this is not history just for history's sake. There's a really important reason. We, we look at these books with an eye to and with an understanding of the fact that these stories and this history is written for a specific reason. It is written here in order to point us forward to God's promise of an everlasting kingdom and the true and ultimate king, Jesus Christ. So all of these stories, as we look at them, we're looking forward and seeing Jesus through them. So let's read our text this morning as we begin. First Kings chapter 8. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but for our reading, we're going to read the first 11 verses. Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and the heads of the tribes of the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanium, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this manifestation of your glory. Lord, thank you that we get to be those also, Lord, whom you fill with your glory. And so as we talk about that today, as we study your word, Lord, would you equip us, teach us, um, challenge us. Lord, do the work in our hearts that you know we need done, or depending on where each of us are at. And we just open ourselves up to hear from you and to receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. For so many of us, this COVID-19 pandemic that we're in the midst of, this has really been a time of breaking, hasn't it? It's broken us out of our routines. It's broken us out of our comfort zones. And yet, as we are being stretched and broken in different areas of our lives, it's really important for us to remember that God has done and still does some of his greatest work through brokenness. Through brokenness. If you look at the Bible, one of the recurring themes that you'll see is that there are benefits to brokenness. 
It may not be comfortable in the moment, but there are big things that God does through brokenness. And we're going to see an example of that today as we look at 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, in our study last week, we looked at the construction of the temple in the time of Solomon. Today in our study, we're going to be looking at the dedication of the temple and how God filled the temple with his glory. Now, again, one of the things we talked about in our study last week, which continues on into our study this week, is this. According to the New Testament, in Christ, you and I become temples of the living God. He dwells in us and among us as his people. And here's the thing I want you to remember. This is our key sentence for this message. Here it is. Just as God filled the temple, God's glory filled the temple, God has placed the light of his glory in us who believe with the goal that it would get out for others to see. Let me say that again. This is going to be the key thought for this whole message. You're going to want to memorize this, write it down, think about it. Just as God's glory filled the temple, God has placed the light of his glory in us who believe with the goal that it would get out for others to see. The title of today's message is filled with the glory of God. And the way we're going to look at this passage is we're going to break down that sentence that I told you, and we're going to look at each of its three parts, and that'll be the way that we work through this passage. So let's begin. Just as God's glory filled the temple. So God's glory filled the temple. What we read about here in 1 Kings chapter 8 is that the dedication of the temple after it had been constructed, how it took place. This is really the grand opening. And I thought about this, you know, the timing of this uh, study is really interesting because today uh, was supposed to be the day when we were going to have really our dedication ceremony for this building. We were going to fill the place up. That was our plan. Fill the place up and pray over God's work here over the next several years. And we were going to have a grand opening. But of course, because of COVID-19, that's been postponed. And by the way, we do plan that as soon as we are able to, we're going to have a proper grand opening and a dedication ceremony. But the timing is interesting that this is what we're reading about on this very day when we were planning to do that. Now we read in verse 2 that this dedication ceremony took place in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. Now that's interesting because what it tells us is that there were 11 months that passed from the completion of construction to the time of the dedication. And during that time, of course, they were making preparations. We read what some of those preparations were. They had to bring up all the items from the tabernacle which was in a different place. It was in a place called Gibeon. Had to bring up all the items from the tabernacle to the temple and set them all up. And of course, the most important of all items was the Ark of the Covenant. We talked a little bit about what the Ark of the Covenant was last week, but just in short, the Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred, most significant item in all of ancient Israel. It was a golden box that held the stone tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were written. And what the Ark represented, it represented the throne of God on earth. And it was used for the most important purpose in all of the temple rituals, and that was to make atonement for the sins of the people. So we read, they brought up the Ark of the Covenant, they placed it in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, and it tells us in verse 10 that when the priests had done that and they came out of the holy place, it says that a cloud filled the house of the Lord. This cloud was the manifestation of God's glory, the manifestation of God's glory. And this cloud was so thick 
It says the priests were unable to stand because of it. This cloud is seen throughout the Bible. In fact, it's seen in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's sometimes referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. It's God's glory in a manifested form that can be seen and felt. Now, you might ask, what is exactly the glory of God? Well, the glory of God could be defined as the radiant outshining of God's character, the radiant outshining of God's character. This glory cloud, again, it's seen in the Old Testament and it's seen in the New Testament. I'll give you some examples. This is the cloud when you remember God set them free from Egypt and he led them through the desert towards the Red Sea. This cloud guided the way for them there in Egypt. This is the cloud from which God spoke to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. He spoke out of this cloud. This is the same cloud, by the way, which filled the tabernacle. In the New Testament, this cloud is present there when Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. This same cloud surrounded Jesus during his ascension into heaven, which, by the way, we're going to study about next week. You're going to want to be here for that because we're going to take a special look at Pentecost for that day. And so this cloud was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. And this is the cloud in which Jesus will one day return. The filling of the temple with the glory of God was really, you could think of it this way, it was the stamp of approval on this building. Now, we've talked about this last week, and it's still true, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. His his presence wasn't limited to this building, and yet he was present in this place in a special and unique way. This was a place where People met with God in order to grow in relationship with him. There's a really interesting story about the glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. Now, in, in the time of Ezekiel the prophet, which, by the way, we are going to eventually get to as we study through First and Second Kings, but in the time of Ezekiel the prophet, the people of Israel had, by and large, turned away from God in their hearts, and yet they still continued to keep many of the ordinances and rituals that took place in the temple, the, the routines and all of that. And, and at one point, here's what happens. Ezekiel, God gives him this vision, and Ezekiel is looking at the temple, and he sees this vision in which he sees the glory of the Lord depart from the temple, the same Shekinah glory that came into the temple on this day when it was dedicated. Ezekiel sees as it picks up and leaves. And as you read the chapter, it's actually quite heartbreaking and dramatic as it as it plays out because God's glory and presence departs from the temple and it stops at the entrance to the temple and looks back almost like wistfully wondering, are the people even going to notice? And then he goes out and he goes down the valley, you know, on the other side of Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, and then up the Mount of Olives and it stops again at the top of the Mount of Olives and looks back again wondering, will they notice? that my presence has left. And what's so tragic is that no one even notices. They just continue on with their rituals, with their practices, without, without even noticing or caring that God's presence and God's glory was no longer there. You see, the beauty of the temple wasn't found in the cedar or in the gold. It was found in the presence and the glory of God that dwelt in that place. Without that, Without the connection, without the relationship between God and people, the rituals were empty. 
Now, now, if you look ahead one chapter here in 1 Kings to 1 Kings chapter 9, maybe just flip the page and look at verses 6 and 7 of 1 Kings chapter 9. God actually tells Solomon, he says, if at some point in the future the people turn away from me in their hearts, he says, then in that time, even this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. In other words, this building only had value as long as it facilitated relationship between God and people. As long as that was the case, God would be there, his presence and his glory to be with people. But if that wasn't the case, God didn't need this building. In, in verse 14 here in 1 Kings chapter 8, in verse 14 we see as Solomon turns to the people and he blesses them. He begins by reminding them of the history of the temple, how it started in the heart of his father David. He reminds them of the covenant that the people of Israel entered into when they left Sinai and left Egypt. When God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, they made a covenant with God. He would be their God. They would be his people. And then starting in verse 22, uh, we have the longest prayer in the entire Bible. If you're wondering where it is, here it is. 1 Kings chapter 8 says in verse 22, Solomon spread his hands up to heaven. This was the common posture of prayer for Jewish people in the Old Testament. You know, today many of us, our common posture of prayer, we like to sit down, fold our hands, close our eyes, bow our heads. But for the Jewish people, especially in the Old Testament, their posture of prayer is that they would spread their hands up to heaven as a gesture of surrender and openness to God. That's where that comes from. Solomon begins the prayer in verse 23 by praising God for who he is. He says, God, you are almighty. God, you are faithful. You keep your promises. And he thanks God for the promises God has kept up until this point. But then he transitions and he reminds God reverently of his future promises, which are still yet to be fulfilled. And he asks God to fulfill those promises. Now, I was, I was wondering, maybe there are some of you who are a little bit like me in that maybe you struggle to pray. Here's something that can really help you out. Uh, look, look at Solomon and how he prays. He's praying through the promises of God. He's praying through the things that God has said. He's recalling what God has said and praying through those words. You know, I was visiting with a friend of mine recently before all of the uh, travel restrictions were closed. I was visiting with a friend, and he was telling me, about this revolution that had taken place in his personal prayer life. He told me how prior to this, he, he felt that he was stuck. He didn't really know how to pray. He would try to pray, but then after a few minutes, he would just run out of stuff to say, and he would just found himself saying the same things over and over, asking for the same things. And as I was listening to him, I was just thinking, you know, yeah, I can relate to that. In fact, that uh, sounds a lot like my prayer life as well. But then he told me what has helped him and what has changed his prayer life, and that is praying through the scriptures. So what he'll do, he explained, was he'll take the Bible and he will be talking to God about what he's reading and how it relates to his life. So for example, as he reads a passage that talks about who God is, he will be reading it and praying as he reads it, praising God for who he is. As he reads about something which talks about how, who he is, he'll ask God to help him in those areas where he needs help. As he reads the promises of God, 
He'll boldly and yet reverently ask God to be faithful and fulfill those promises. And as I have started doing this myself, I'm just going to tell you it's transformed my prayer life. Essentially, you never get bored because you never run out of material or things to talk to God about. And in this way, reading the Bible then becomes conversational, right? You're receiving from God and speaking back to God. You're working those thoughts and those ideas, those promises into your heart and engaging with God over what he has already said. And we see the same pattern, for example, here with Solomon in the Bible, praying through the words of God and the promises of God. And I would encourage you, incorporate this in your prayer life as well. The Psalms are a great place to start. Uh, Books in the New Testament, also a great place to start. You know, one of the ways that we cultivate our relationship with God is by communicating with Him. And, And if you're anything like me, maybe you feel like you're not really very good at praying and you don't know what to pray about, then try this. Try praying through the things that God has already said, praying through the Scriptures like Solomon did here. Solomon also goes on and he prays for a bunch of hypothetical situations in which people will sin and then call out to God for mercy. Now, this is interesting because it tells us that you do not have to be a perfect person in order for God to hear your prayers. Did you know that? You don't have to be a perfect person in order for God to hear your prayers. No matter how far you've drifted away from God, no matter what you've done or where you've been, the only thing you have to do in order for God to hear you is to be humble. It's to humble yourself before God. And this is one of the great themes that we've seen recurring throughout the book of 1 Kings so far is this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. Notice what Solomon says in verse 46. He says, when this people sins against you, not if the people sin against you, but when they sin against you. In other words, it's it's an inevitability. And he says, for there is no one who does not sin. Solomon recognized this fact that there is no one who does not need God's grace. But the way to receive God's grace, again, is through humble repentance. Solomon prays in verses 41 through 43 that foreigners would come to the temple. And Solomon asked God to hear the prayers of the foreigners, that they would turn to him and put their faith in him as the one true God. You know, sometimes another thing we might wonder about prayer is, does God hear the prayers of people who don't follow him, who don't obey him, who don't love him? And it would seem that the answer is yes. Uh, And in fact, it would seem that the answer is that Praying to God can, for many people, be a first step or or one of the steps in the process of coming to faith and coming to a relationship with God. And so for those friends of yours, those family members of yours, I would encourage you, tell them that you're praying for them. That has a big impact on people when you tell them, I'm praying for you. And then ask them, how can I pray for you? Are there some specific things that I can pray for you for? And also, encourage them to try praying and see how God might use that in their life um, as they do that. Now, in verse 54, Solomon finishes this prayer. And it says that he's now, at this point, he's dropped to his knees. So at some point in this prayer, he started out standing with his hands raised to heaven. At some point, he had dropped to his knees. He stands up, and in verse 55, he speaks to the people once again, and he reminds them of who God has called them to be. He has called them to be a people who know him and who make him known to others. 
knowing him and making him known. That's who we are also called to be, even now as the people of God. And then from verses 62 to 66, we see that they have this huge seven-day-long celebration, celebrating the grand opening of the temple. And during this celebration, it says that they had just massive amounts of, of of sacrifices, peace offerings, grain offerings. We read that they slaughtered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That's a lot. Now, if you read in the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 7, you'll see in those first seven chapters of Leviticus, it's laid out what are the different sacrifices that took place in the temple. And there were seven different kinds. And what's interesting is a lot of times when we talk about sacrifice, we tend to think of it only in regard to atonement for sin. But if you look at Leviticus, you'll notice that only two out of the seven sacrifices were for the atonement of sin. Other sacrifices were made for saying, you know, God, I'm dedicated to you. Other sacrifices, like, for example, the peace offering. This was an offering that you would make, and uh, you would bring either grain. So there was a grain form, which we read about here, or there was a meat form. And what you'd do is you'd bring this offering to the temple. It would be consecrated by the priests. They'd put it on the altar, you know, where there was fire under the altar. So it would be cooked. And then you would take that meat or that grain patty or cake or whatever that thing was that you made out of grain, and you would eat it together with other people. It was a time of fellowship. And, and what it symbolized was that by this offering, by this sacrifice, or by this slain animal, you're able to have fellowship with God and fellowship with other people. And it was really like, like what we would think of like a barbecue, like a big corporate community barbecue. And so we see they had this massive corporate gathering uh, with all of these animals being slaughtered and they're eating and it's just a huge party celebrating the grand opening of the temple that lasts for seven days. Sounds amazing, right? Well, it was amazing unless you were one of the people who was not allowed to be there. Now you might say, what do you mean? Who wasn't allowed to be there? Wasn't everybody invited? Well, yes, everybody was invited except for those who were not allowed to come. Now who was not allowed to come? Here's who. Those who were unclean. Those who were unclean. Now, there were several ways to become unclean. For example, if you came in contact with a dead body or a dead animal, that would make you unclean. If you had an open wound or a flow of blood, that would make you unclean. And perhaps the most devastating way to become unclean was to be a leper, right? To be a leper. If you were unclean for any of these reasons, then you would not be allowed to take part in this great feast, this festival, this party that was taking place that celebrated fellowship with God. So imagine, you know, like those drone shots, right, where the drone starts out on the ground and raises up, and you can see, you know, the, the image from above, the, the big party taking place. You would see the temple there in the center. You'd see the temple courts with its walls, right, made of cedar like we read about last week. And within those walls, thousands of people eating and having having merriment and a good time. And then you would see the, the courtyard walls. And outside the walls, there would be other people, people who were not allowed to come in because they were unclean for various reasons. Now, of all the different forms and ways to become unclean, leprosy was by far the most devastating. And the reason it was devastating is because there was no cure 
There was no way to be cleansed if you had leprosy. All the other forms of uncleanness, you could be cleansed from. They were temporary, right? If you had a flow of blood, well, when it, when it was no longer flowing, well, then you would take a ritual bath and you would be able to enter into fellowship again. If you had touched a dead body, you wait a certain number of days and then you would be able to cleanse and go into fellowship again. But if you had leprosy, there was no way to fix your situation. You couldn't just wait it out. It wouldn't just go away. There was no cure. So for the rest of your life, this is your life. You are cut off. You are excluded from the glory and the presence of God that is there in the temple. You're not even allowed to enter into the courts. Think about it. If you sinned, you couldn't even go and make a sin offering to make atonement for your sins because you're not even allowed to enter the temple courts. It was a hopeless, lonely existence as you waited to slowly die. Pretty depressing, right? Good thing that we're not like that, right? I bet you're thinking to yourself, I'm glad I'm not one of those guys. Well, unfortunately, that's exactly who you are. That's exactly who I am. You see, leprosy in the Bible is one of the clearest pictures of sin. Leprosy, like sin, starts out under the skin, under the surface, and it spreads throughout your entire body. It causes your flesh to die while you're still walking around and living. And all of the things that are true of leprosy are also true of sin. See, the Bible tells us that because of our sin, we are dead. We are dead people walking, dead spiritually, even when we're alive physically. And like leprosy, sin isolates you. It isolates you from God and from others. It puts you on the outside, cut off from fellowship. It makes you unclean and defiled. And it is absolutely hopeless because there is nothing that you can do to fix it. What's interesting is that in the Old Testament law, in the law of Moses, in Leviticus 13, we read the law of the leper and there's laws not only deal with how to handle leprosy, but they also talked about what to do in the case of a person who was cured from leprosy. Now, here's why that's interesting. Because there was not a cure for leprosy. In other words, the only way to be cured from leprosy was by an act of God. And this is why one of the signs by which people were told that they would be able to recognize the Messiah when he came is that the Messiah would be one who would cleanse and heal lepers. Because again, everyone knows the only way to be healed of leprosy is an act of God. And so when Jesus came along and he started saying, and people started saying, this guy is the Messiah, he's the promised Savior, their immediate question was, among many questions, but one of their questions was, okay, does he heal lepers? We read that one time a delegation came to Jesus of John the Baptist followers, and they said, Jesus, we're, we just want to know for sure are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, well, look around. What do you see? The blind are able to see. The lepers, he said, are cleansed. And the gospel is preached to the poor. He goes, what more proof do you need? In other words, this was the proof that Jesus was the Messiah, that he healed lepers. And the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus did not only come to heal the leprosy of lepers back then, but Jesus has come to heal you and to heal me of our spiritual leprosy as well. See, we were on the outside, cut off from fellowship with God because of our defilement, because we were unclean, unable to do anything to fix our condition. But Jesus came, and on the cross, 
He took our defilement upon himself. He was nailed to the cross, and our defilement was nailed to the cross with him. And by faith, as we are raised to new life through his resurrection, through his life, we become new creations, free of that leprous condition. And that, that wasn't something, again, that you could do for yourself. It was an act of God. You, and so, so here's what's happened. Because you have been cleansed in Jesus, now you can enter into fellowship with God. You can enter into that feast and one day you have this promise that you will be brought into the feast to end all feasts when God seats you at his table and you enjoy fellowship with him forever. This glory cloud, by the way, we see it throughout the Bible, but this wasn't the only manifestation of God's glory that we see throughout the scriptures. There was another manifestation of God's glory equally as great, perhaps, and actually certainly greater. Remember, glory, how did we define it? It is the radiant outshining of God's character. We're told in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that the Word was God. And then we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Colossians chapter 1, we're told that Jesus... In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God's glory, the outshining of God's character, made tangible and visible for us to see and feel. In Jesus, we see God's character in a walking, talking, touching person. If you want to see the glory of God manifested, it is found most fully, most clearly, most perfectly in Jesus. But that's not all. Not only has God, uh, not only is Jesus the perfect manifestation of God's glory, and not only did Jesus come in order to cleanse us from our spiritual leprosy so that we who were defiled could be cleansed, so that we who were cut off could be brought near, but, and this is our second point as we move through this, just as God's glory filled the temple, God has placed the light of his glory in us who believe. He has placed the light of his glory in us who believe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're told something incredible and astounding, and that's this, that God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, we're told by Paul the Apostle that there's this amazing mystery, this great treasure that has been put in us as Christians. He calls it Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, what happens when you put your faith in Jesus is not only are you cleansed from spiritual leprosy, not only are you brought in to fellowship with God, but God actually indwells you by his spirit. Jesus Christ, the manifestation, the fullest manifestation of God's glory, not only came and lived here on earth, but now for those who put their faith in him and embrace God's grace, he comes and he indwells you. See, what we're told there, essentially in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, is that the same glory that filled the temple, the glory of God, he has now placed that same light of his glory in us who believe. It's incredible, right? Now, now here's the question. Why would he do that? Well, look, look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In the very next verse, verse 7, it says this, We have this treasure of God's glory, 
the light of his glory in jars of clay. Now, what, is, what does that mean? That's referring to our earthly physical bodies, right? These bodies of ours that were made from the dust of the earth and to the dust they will return. Paul is comparing them to earthen jars, not ornate, ceramic, marble, or golden, you know, vessels. No, no, no. Think terracotta jars, right? Rough pots made of clay and mud. That's you and me. We're earthy. We're, we're dirty type of people. We're made from the dirt of the earth, and to the earth we will return. And yet in these dusty bodies, God has placed this incredible treasure, the light of God's glory. But the question is this, why would God do that? What would, what would be the purpose in him putting his glory inside of me or inside of you? Now, we talked about last week how the temple was a foreshadowing of who we become in Christ. And just as God, even though he's omnipresent, his presence was specially present there in the temple in a special way. The same is true for us in Christ. And just as the glory of the Lord filling the temple was God's stamp of approval on the temple, in the same way God's placing of his spirit inside of us is like his stamp of approval on us. In fact, the Bible tells us exactly that in Ephesians chapter 1. We're told this, In him also, that's in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. A seal that he's talking about, it was a stamp that you would put into hot wax. So maybe you had a letter, you put wax on the envelope and you would stamp it with your personal seal. It was like your signature. It's like signing off on an important document or official letter. You would pour some hot wax on there. You'd take your seal, your stamp, and you would press it into there. And it would show that this bore the stamp of your approval. And in the same way that the filling of the temple in the time of Solomon was God's stamp of approval on the temple, we now, as the people of God, as the community of believers, we have become temples for the living God. God has placed the light of his glory and his presence inside of you and has put his stamp of approval on you that you are his, that he has redeemed you and he is going to see you through. But there's another reason, and that is our third point. There's another reason why God has placed the light of his glory in us who believe. See, just as God's glory filled the temple, God has placed the light of his glory in us who believe with the goal that it would get out for others to see. As Solomon speaks about the temple, one of the things he reminds the people is that the temple has a missionary purpose, a missionary purpose. Now, in the same way, we who are now called temples of the living God, he has placed the light of his glory in us, in Christ. One of the purposes for that is a missionary purpose, that that light would get out for others to see and be drawn to him. Just as God says in Isaiah chapter 60, nations will be drawn to your light. Kings will be drawn to the brightness of your shining. See, God has placed the light of his glory inside of us with the goal that people would see it and be drawn to relationship with God. But the question is this. If this light is inside of us, then how will people see it? How will people see it? How will it become visible? And I'll tell you two ways as we finish today. Two ways. Number one is this. 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. No, instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And he said in the next verse, In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So that's the first way. One of the ways that people see the light of God's glory in your life is when you walk in those good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. People see the difference that God has made in our lives. But there's a second way. And this is where I'd like to finish today. The second way that people see the light of God's glory that he has placed within you is through brokenness. Remember we talked about that at the beginning. Brokenness. How does light get out for other people to see? One of the ways is by those clay jars that we are being broken so that the light can shine forth. You know, when uh, Rosemary and I were first married, we had a set of dishes in our house that Rosemary inherited from her dad when he passed away. And so, of course, they were very meaningful to us, and we kept them with us. And as we moved from different flats and different places where we lived, and as we had kids, and they would inevitably get uh, knocked off the table, they'd fall on the ground, and some of them would break. And so what I would do whenever these dishes broke is that I would take them, and I would glue them back together with super glue. And two things would happen when you glued those dishes back together with super glue. One interesting thing is that the glued up parts, right, where the glue was, was actually stronger than the parts that had never been broken. The other thing that happened was this. Whenever these dishes broke, you know how dishes are. When they break, there are small pieces that are lost in the process. So when you glue them back together, you end up with cracks and holes. And if you held those plates or those bowls up to a light, the cracks and the holes, you could actually see the light streaming through them. And that's a perfect picture of who we are as clay jars. There are moments in our lives where we get hit, where we get banged around, and we break and we crack. And God, in his loving mercy, he takes us and he glues us back together. And those parts of our lives where those breaks took place and he's applied the glue to heal those cracks, oftentimes those parts in our lives actually become stronger than they were before. But when we're broken, there are small parts of us that are lost as well in the process. And it's through those cracks and those holes that are left behind that the light of God's glory that is within us can shine forth for others to see. And as the light of God's glory shines out of those broken but healed parts of your life, it can bring God's light into the dark places of other people's lives. This whole picture of light being contained in a clay jar, it reminds us of a story in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, chapter 7. Maybe you've heard of Gideon before. Well, Gideon had a small number of people, and the army of the Midianites was camped against them. They were harassing them, giving them a hard time, and they were about to wipe them out. And so Gideon is told in the middle of the night to take this small band of people. They don't have enough people to fight the Midianites themselves. And so he, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a torch. Every man needs to carry a torch. And I want you to light these torches, but I want you to put them inside of or encase them in clay jars. So there we go, right? Light inside of clay jars. 
And so what do they do? Well, they go in the middle of the night, in the darkest moment of the night, and they surround the Midianite camp while the Midianites slept. And on the count that Gideon gave, every man took his clay jar, and at the same time, they broke those jars. And what happened as the jars were broken? The light that was within them shone forth. And through that tactic, God's people were victorious. In other words, light, in order for the light to be revealed, the clay jar had to be broken. And friends, isn't that often the case in our lives as well? God does some of his greatest work in us and through us through moments of brokenness. It's not comfortable in the moment. No one wants to be broken, but God does big things in us and through us by allowing us to be broken. Maybe you remember another story. A woman who anointed Jesus' feet on the night before he was crucified. It says that she brought this perfume that came in an alabaster box. And in order for that beautiful aroma of the perfume to be released and poured out so that people could smell it and feel it, what had to happen? That alabaster box had to be broken. Now we're told in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we who have been redeemed by Jesus, we actually bear his aroma. We carry the aroma of Jesus in our lives. And here's what I'm here to tell you. Sometimes in order for that beautiful aroma to be released from our lives, in order for other people to experience it, it requires for us as vessels to be broken. During this time of brokenness, during this COVID-19 pandemic, as you're being broken out of your routine, as you're being broken out of your comfort zone, I want you to ask yourself this. What is it that is coming out of my life as I'm being broken? Is it the light of God's glory? Is it the aroma of Christ? I, I sincerely hope it is. But even if it isn't, Whatever it is that you see coming out of your life during this time as you're being broken, even if it's not something that you want to see, even if it's not something beautiful or fragrant, this is an opportunity for God to work in your life and bring growth and maybe even break you out of a rut or an unhealthy pattern. And in conclusion, I just want to encourage you, don't despise times of brokenness. Don't despise the breaking experiences in your lives because God wants to use them for good to accomplish his work in you and through you in powerful ways. And as we do this, we remember that Jesus, he was broken for us in order to heal that which is broken in us, in order to heal that which is broken in the world once and for all. That is the hope that we have in him. And that's the hope that we're going to celebrate now. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.